The Grant Cedillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. I've just got a, a, just one or two opening questions, and I want to open it up because I'm sure many of you have uh, lots of questions that you would like to ask Steve. But and we talked a little bit about this on the podcast that we did earlier, but it's such a moving story, and it's so interesting to hear you talk about the way in which your experience in life has changed because of that. But many of the people in the audience are business people and have been successful in that way, work for successful organizations. Um, talk a little bit about, I mean, these kinds of issues, homelessness, mental health issues, you put a lot of focus in the things that you write on, a lot of these sort of intractable social issues. What do you see as kind of the role or ways in which the business community or people even outside of the business community can have a greater impact than we're having now on some of these really significant social issues? Well, it's, um, it's really important to think in those terms right now because um, I, I've talked to several people tonight. Um, including John here, we're talking about the Venice um, uh, Free Clinic and about all of the challenges they've got. They've got an 8% layoff, which means 22 um, people. Um, and so all of these agencies that are trying to do good things for people in need are uh, in crunch time. And um, it's, it's no time to look for government solutions, I think, um, or at least to begin uh, exploring more effective partnerships between uh, business and uh, government. And um, downtown on Skid Row, um, what's frustrating, and people ask all the time, well, have things gotten better since you started writing about this? And it's another of the many gifts that Nathaniel has, uh, has delivered to me, is a, a, the ability to shine a spotlight on these issues. And people don't want to read about public policy uh, in the paper, but they'll read about a human drama when they've got a rooting interest in somebody. And so he's the one who's allowed me to delve into those issues um, here's the, the, the frustrating thing on Skid Row is that it's changed some, it's gotten a little bit better, but the city and the county have done what for the most part is the easiest thing to do, which is to have more cops out there. And cops cannot be expected to solve the problem. It is important for the cops to get rid of the major crime out there, and Nathaniel would be the first guy backing that, because every day he's got to walk past drug dealers and um, it, it works him into a, a frenzy every day. Um, but there is not enough of what has been um, um, proven to work in San Francisco, in Denver, in New York. It's known as permanent supportive housing. And there are many public-private partnerships that do that. Um, several of them exist downtown, um, and there are others around the state. And what, what, what happens is that uh, there are incentives for private investment in what's known as permanent supportive housing, which is uh, not just a roof over your head, but all of the services that you might need, whether it's mental health services, addiction rehab. There are a lot of people down there who are so-called dual diagnosis. You've got a mental illness and you've got an addiction problem. And so um, uh, very recently I called Casey Haran, who's the director of LAMP, where Nathaniel still stays. And they said, what's your waiting list like right now? Um, and she, and, and she said it's, and we're talking about people who go there during the day for the services, but do not have a bed because there's a shortage of beds. And she said the, the waiting list is 700 people. 
So you, you look at her agency and a couple of others, and they've got these huge waiting lists. And it's no surprise that if you go down to Skid Row, people are still sleeping in the gutters, chasing rats with sticks. And the city and the county have moved to begin doing a better job of creating permanent supportive housing. But we are way, way, way behind New York City. And uh, we were talking earlier about how President Bush's homeless czar, Philip Mon Mangano or Mangiano, I'm not sure how you uh, pronounce it, is a guy who um, really gets it and who um, all of the homeless advocates, including Casey, the director of LAMP, just love because he comes to town and says, look, all of you cities and counties that are saying we don't have the money to do more permanent supportive housing need to understand um, that what you're doing is more expensive because what you're doing now is having all of these cops down here and the problem is not over when they arrest somebody for jaywalking um, because there's a warrant out on them because they couldn't afford to pay the last jaywalking ticket. Um, you're tying up people um, with the police and in jails and in the court system and in um, psychiatric um, emergency wards and state prisons and it is costing us a fortune. And if you invest it up front with public-private partnerships in permanent supportive housing like New York has done, you can knock out this problem. Um, so that's one of the ways that we can do a much better job of having business people get involved. I mean, another way is to, um, we were talking about this as well, I think not just business, but other, but social organizations, uh, parishes, synagogues, I think could, could find much more constructive ways to buddy up, to get trained, to team with LAMP or with the Midnight Mission or whatever it is, so that people can make a difference in someone's life on a day other than Thanksgiving. It's nice that everybody wants to run downtown on Thanksgiving, but it is the only day of the year they don't need your help because 80,000 other people are there to help. They need it on all the other days. And I don't think that you have to make an investment um, in someone's life the way I have with Nathaniel. This is an unusual case. But an hour a week to hook up with somebody through some social organization, a service organization, or through you know whatever congregation you're involved in, I just see uh, great opportunities there. And, you know, it's not a one-way thing, as I've just explained to you here. Uh, it's not just giving the rewards that will come your way. Um, I was speaking about this at All Saints Church a couple weeks ago and um, described these rewards, and I said, you feel as though you've been delivered to a state of grace. And to, to just a, a simple act of human kindness and generosity, bring, it, it brings many, many returns. And um, it's not a one-way thing. Um, Nathaniel has, has given back in so many ways that have changed my life forever. I've never met a person like him, and I've never had either as challenging or as richly rewarding an experience. Good. I'm going to open it up, and what questions do we have from the audience about this particular story or other aspects of what Mr. Lopez does? We've got microphones. We can Okay, back here. Let's get you a microphone real quick. Oh, thank you. They have um, a school on wheels, and it was started here in Malibu by Angus Stevens, and they go to the cars with the children in living in the cars, and now they've been able to open several buildings down in uh, downtown Los Angeles to give books and, and school supplies. And uh, that's something that's just very local, 
that maybe people would be interested in. It's uh, School on Wheels. Thank well, you, Mr. Lopez. Yeah, well, there are lots of different ways to get involved. Um, anybody who wants to know more about LAMP, just go to www.lampcommunity.org or check out um, Union Rescue Mission or uh, the Midnight Mission. These are all groups that are having an incredible impact. And, you know, Casey Horan and her team, they are rescuing lives. They are salvaging the lives of hundreds of Nathaniels. Um, and it's another reason I'm uncomfortable getting credit for doing all of this for Nathaniel. Um, these are people who do this work um, day in and day out um, with little recognition. And um, what the, the miracles that they, I shouldn't say, um, I mean, it's hard work. It's just hard work that um, uh, in the right organizations can really change people's lives. And the first person who made me aware of this was actually in my days at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And it's kind of a funny story. I was, I was uh, rummaging around for a Thanksgiving uh, column. And uh, I wanted it to be uh, sort of upbeat because it was Thanksgiving. And I asked a colleague, I said, I can't think of anything that's not a complete cliche. Um, you know, uh, what, do you have any ideas? And he said, yeah, go see Sister Mary. What do you mean, Sister Mary? Sister Mary Scullion is a nun with the Sisters of Mercy in downtown Philadelphia who, uh, in the evening, uh, puts on her overcoat and goes out on the streets in her sneakers um, on, you know, 20-degree uh, nights trying to talk uh, people with mental illness in off the streets so they don't freeze to death. And she brings them to this um, convent and uh, has created this little home for them in there. And uh, so why don't you go to the convent and see all of these uh, mentally ill women who are in there? And I said, um, that's an upbeat Thanksgiving Day column. <laughs> and he said, if you go, he said, I'll tell you what, go over there and hang with Sister Mary and some of the people she's rescued. And if you don't come away feeling great and inspired, I'll buy you lunch anywhere you want to go. So I went over, and sure enough, Sister Mary had all of these women who um, she had, over time, talked into trusting her, coming in off the street. Um, one woman, Georgiana, had lost all of her toes from frostbite, but had been reunited with family that she hadn't spoken to in years, and ended up working as the receptionist of Project Home, which is what Sister Mary calls this thing. And Sister Mary has, she was one of the pioneers in permanent supportive housing. Not only do you live there, but you get training to work in their diner and in their clothing store, their secondhand store. So you live there, you get training there, you're reunited with family there, and you have this whole new community. Um, there are so many people, so many ways to make a difference. And it's going to be, as I said, all the more important than ever uh, in this economy as fundraising becomes difficult for nonprofits and as, um, you know, um, government um, contributions to these efforts are, are, are squeezed. You mentioned the Union Rescue Mission. I don't know how many people in the audience uh, are aware of this, but our Graduate School of Education Psychology has a psychology clinic that they operate at the Union Rescue Mission, and then our School of Law actually provides uh, free law services at the Union Rescue Mission. So there's some interesting things going on uh, just through the university in terms of helping. Here's another way you can help, um, speaking of the Union Rescue Mission. Um, Andy Bales runs the, uh, the Union Rescue Mission. He's a, uh, he's a minister. And uh, Andy, um, the Union Rescue Mission is right smack dab in the middle of Skid Row. You've seen them in the news for, among other things, patient dumping. Hospitals that dump patients right out. Andy's got a camera out there, so he nails them on this. 
But Andy bought this property way out in um, northeastern uh, San Fernando Valley, like near Pacoima. Uh, it's called Hope Gardens. And he saw it as a place to get all of the women and children off of Skid Row and out into a safe environment where the, the children would be tended to by day and the women would go to college. So that it's not just you're getting out of Skid Row, but you're going you're gonna to have a new life um, once you become self-sufficient. So they bought this property for something like $7 million, and it really is in the middle of nowhere. There's not a house within um, about a mile and a half of it. Um, and there was community opposition. And this thing was bottled up for years at a tremendous cost to the Union Rescue Mission, the attorney's fees, fighting this thing, getting the support of the Board of Supervisors. So another thing people can do is just stand up and scream. Um, business, you know, owners, um, citizens of Los Angeles, just stand up and scream. It's, it's, it's a strange place in that so few people know who their supervisor is, what they do, or what impact they have on people's lives. But it's a way, if you were more engaged, to just stand up and scream and say, we are not going to tolerate this. These are women and children, and the kids are seeing, you know, bodies on the street and seeing, you know, people chasing rats with sticks. And here's somebody who has made an investment in getting them out of harm's way, and there's community opposition? What are you talking about? So um, it's another way to get involved and make a difference. Yeah, that's great. Other questions? We've got time for one or two more. Yeah. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for your story. I've been so inspired, as I'm sure everyone else has. Um, I did send you an email, and I'm sure it's in your file box, and don't worry about <laughs> replying back to so you can uh, answer me now. But my Nathaniel is a bum on Beverly Boulevard down in Beverly Hills near the Grove. His name is Jerry. And I encountered him about a year ago, and I'm definitely not the kind of person who's homeless friendly. They always kind of freak me out. And this guy came across my path. He's somewhat capitalistic and entrepreneurial. And it's kind of come across my path over the last several weeks that I feel like I have to do something. And it's not enough for me just to go down there and give him money or give him a Bible or give him clothes, but that I, I feel like I need to do something more. And if it is within my power to help him, then I have to do it because nobody else has. And it's been a year and nothing's changed. And I don't really know where to start. I mean, I, I'm just a businesswoman and you know, and he's a 53-year-old homeless man from Prague, and he doesn't seem to have any mental issues. He seems very lucid and quite bright and brilliant and just seems to talk my ear off every time I go down there. But I feel like I'm, I mean, no one else is really interested, and I don't really know what to do to, to help him out. He gets mugged all the time and gets robbed, and he's just in this vicious cycle of, you know, being left on the streets. And what, I mean, what advice do you have? Well, um, I, would, I would locate the nearest agency that, that, um, um, that helps people like that and notify them and tell them exactly where. Uh, but uh, better than that, um, send me another email and say, remember me from Pepperdine <laughs> in the message field, and uh, I will call you and uh, put you in touch with somebody who can go out there and try to do, it's called outreach. Um, and the philosophy is uh, we'll meet them where they are. And in the case of Lamp and the village, in, um, uh, there are two uh, teachers here who just told me that they visited the village. Oh, yeah, the social, uh, he's psychology faculty and your social introductory social work. They just visited the village in Long Beach, which is the same model as Lamp 
on Skid Row, and they have this thing that they call well, the philosophy of meeting you where you are, or meeting them where they are. And what it means is you go out and you talk to, what's his name, Jerry? Jerry. Uh, they would send somebody out, and they would know that it could be two dozen, three dozen trips. But they go out and say, hey, it's, a, it's cold today. Jerry, do you need a jacket? We got one. Or you look hungry. Would you like a sandwich? And hey, um, if you need a shower, come back to Path or whatever place might be the nearest. It might be Path. Um, and you work on that and work on that and work on that. And um, you might say, well, that's a long shot. But guess what? The people who are sent out there to do that outreach used to live on the street. So they know all of the excuses. They know the whole deal, and they've been trained to try to establish trust and to break through. And the first time I went to the village, it was an amazing experience because as I was going in to uh, ask Dr. Mark Reagans for some advice on how to handle um, and deal with and help Nathaniel, um, there was a guy waiting to see him, and it was like an emergency situation. The guy had been suicidal, and they let me sit in on the counseling session. And the doctor did not come off as a doctor. He just asked him, what are your needs right now? And, you, you know, you're limping. Is your foot hurt? And, um, hey, we've got a lot of stuff here that you can take advantage of. And do you need housing? Do you need this? Do you need that? He wasn't trying to make a quick diagnosis and then write a prescription. Um, and David, uh, is, was the patient's name, really took to that well. Um, he was, you know, he was very calm. And he said, okay, I think I'll come back tomorrow. And um, when David left, um, and I was talking to the doctor about that. I looked around, and I saw all of these guys sitting at desks, and I said, are they, are they doctors too? And he said, no, those are outreach workers. And I said, uh, well, uh, what do they do? And he said, they go out, and they meet them where they are. And uh, they try to talk people in. And I said, that sounds tough, and, um, uh, but an interesting job. And Reagan says it is tough, but they all used to live on the street. And now they work here pulling more people in. So um, just email me, and I'll see if we could hook you up with an outreach worker who might try to establish a relationship with Jerry. I'll take one more question. Oh, let's go down here. I know everybody's got lots of questions, but we'll cl close with this one, and then. Thank you. Um, stepping away from Nathaniel's story, a wonderful story, looking forward to, to the movie. Um, you mean the book? I'm sorry, you mean the book. <laughs> The book was phenomenal, too. Um, stepping away from that, you've been a columnist with a lot of success for, for many years. You seem to have an enviable job. You throw rocks at the bad people, and you inspire us to support people like Nathaniel and, and those kinds of causes. Over the years, have you ever gotten it wrong? Have you thrown too many rocks at the wrong person or supported somebody who turned out to be not as worthy? Um, I was not informed that there would be tough questions. <laughs> and you that just is, get to ask them. You don't have to take them. Is that, is a, yeah. that is an excellent question that, unfortunately, comes just as uh, uh, the ringing the dinner bell. <laughs> um, have I... Uh, uh, um, let me try to answer that, but... I, here we are in Malibu. Nobody's asking. Nobody's asked movie questions. I really appreciate that because everywhere I've been going, it's, it seems like it's the first question: is uh, what's it like? What's Robert Downey Jr. like? And what's it like to have him play you? Um, but this is—you guys are asking much better questions. It's uh, you know. Um, it's the way we educate our students. I appreciate that. I really do appreciate that. Um, 
Uh, have I been too tough on certain people? Have I gotten it wrong at times? Um, I can't. I, I think that there are times when maybe the tone was off. Um, I know that there have been times when the tone was off. Um, and I went after somebody a little bit too, uh, too um, harshly. And I had a, um, an editor early on when I worked at the San Jose Mercury News who was very good at catching that because I did it a lot. Um, when I was going after uh, public officials in particular, he said, you know, you just have no, um, you just have no restraint. And um, he said, let me tell you, if you want to take somebody apart, the, if you want to go after somebody and really beat up on them, the sledgehammer is not the tool of choice. <laughs> Use a double-edged sword, you know, uh, we're talking rapier wit. Um, let them stand for just a few seconds before they fall over dead. <laughs> um, and it was really good advice. And I, I do, he was the one who taught me about the power of understatement. Um, and using humor sometimes pulls you back just a little bit, if it's not ridicule, if it's clever. Um, but there have been many times when um, um, I really struggled with, um, have I gone too far? Um, I wrote a column that appeared uh, this past Sunday, I think, that um, I wrote it on Friday when they informed me that um, late Thursday, they said the entire California page is going to be the names of Californians who have died in Iraq and Afghanistan. So it would not be appropriate for me to have a, um, a column that day about a woman who was complaining about the utility boxes <laughs> put up by Sprint. Um, and they said, you really need to do something on the war. And I said, well, I've spoken out against this war, and I don't think it's an appropriate uh, time or place to do that. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to do a grave dance, and I think that I need to keep my views out of it if I do it, and just find a way to, um, you know, um, with some, just just honor the dead. And uh, then another editor said, but you cannot completely surrender who you are or what your feelings are. You can't give that up entirely. And so I wrote the column, which I thought was pretty much down the middle, true to my own feelings, but respectful and treating um, families with dignity. And I could not sleep because um, just wrestling with, was I too much this way? Was I too much that way? Um, and it's something that I do all the time. So I really struggle to try to get it right. Um, and I'm sure that in my long 30-year-plus history, I've gone over the... Um, I've gone over the line too many times, um, but it's something that I'm, I'm uh, always trying to watch out for. Uh, what was the response to that? The response that I got and that um, uh, the paper is getting, there are people who thought listing the names of the dead was an anti-war statement, um, and they've complained about that. Um, I, I thought that it was a powerful tribute, and I thought one of the things that made it so powerful was that whether you're pro-war, anti-war, or anywhere in between, it just evoked powerful feelings. Um, and so I thought it was really a success. But I got people saying, um, how dare you um, use the occasion of um, you know, Memorial Day to um, speak out against the war, which I didn't really think that I did. I said that, you know, I, I certainly didn't go over the, over the line, I didn't think. And then other people saying, uh, since when do you, did you become such a supporter of, you know, um, a war in which 
hundreds of thousands of people have been killed. So I, I think that's a good sign that I got it from both sides. Mm -hmm. So it probably was kind of where you wanted yeah. it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being here. And I know there's probably dozens of other questions that we could ask you that would be wonderful to hear tonight. But I uh, really appreciate you being so honest and open about the experiences that you've had. And I think it's been a, a really wonderful evening together. And I know just a couple of things that I take away from this, especially as you, you told the story about Nathaniel, is one, just sort of being more aware and paying attention to what's going on around us on a different level than we maybe normally do, or you wouldn't even have noticed Nathaniel if you sort of hadn't been doing that. That partly may come from your reporter's background and, and your news background. But I think the other piece of it, too, that strikes me is just thinking about the kind of impact we each individually can have. We sometimes think we don't have the ability to influence and impact these issues on a grand scale, but if we all do our part on even a, a small scale, it has a big impact over time. So I appreciate you coming and sort of sharing that experience with us and, and sort of impacting how we think about some of these issues. Well, thank you for having me and for this whole, um, this whole uh, presentation. And I appreciate the people came out and asked uh, such smart questions and none about the movie. And uh, <laughs> uh, should I give them one question about the movie? OK, who has a burning question about the movie? OK, one right back here. Oh. When will it be released? It's supposed to be released on uh, November 21st. And uh, poor Robert Downey has to go from being Iron Man <laughs> to Newspaper Man. But he, I, I, I will say uh, quickly about the movie that um, DreamWorks, um, DreamWorks was determined not to uh, just, you know, drive through Skid Row and take a quick look and make its movie and get out. Um, Joe Wright is the director. He's the guy who directed Atonement. And from my very first meetings with uh, Joe, he wanted to see Skid Row. The producers here are Gary Foster and um, Russ Krasnov, who, um, when they met with me, um, wanted to see Skid Row and wanted to meet Nathaniel. And I said, what kind of a movie are you going to make? And they said, it's about his impact on you as much as it's about your impact on him. It's about friendship. It's a love story. It's a buddy movie. And I said, but he's a very sick man. He's a wonderful man who is very sick. You're not going to sugarcoat it, are you? And, you know, you can't, we can't put a, a, a smile on the end of this thing and a happy ending. I, I see it as a story that's filled with hope, um, and it's powerful and dramatic. And he said, we are not, you know, we're not going to have him uh, conducting the Los Angeles Philharmonic. <laughs> at the end of this movie. And um, they have been true to their word. And um, um, they decided that they did not want actors to play the people on Skid Row. Mm -hmm. So dozens of people who live on Skid Row are in this movie. And the cast and the crew uh, not only were impressed um, by the fact that they showed up and uh, did so well. And well, I explained to them, look, they don't have agents. So <laughs> But, but they, were, they were very, not only did they, they do their jobs really well, but the, um, the cast and crew were moved by these stories. And we're talking, this tonight is a story about um, human connections. Um, cast and crew, uh, Jamie Foxx was deeply affected by this movie. Um, it's a story that I, I hope to tell one day with, with um, more knowledge of the situation and with his permission. But everybody who worked on this movie was deeply affected 
by the powerful stories of survival and courage that they encountered. Um, and it worked the other way around, too. The people who live on Skid Row um, all marveled at how they were treated with such dignity. So I'm hoping that all of this comes through in the movie. And uh, Mr. Ayers, people often ask, what does he think about all of this? The fact is, he doesn't really have much of an interest in it. And um, he appreciates that they would, like, for instance, call him over to perform for cast and crew. He loves that. To the extent that the movie is recognizing that his career um, um, could have been something really wonderful, he likes that. But he's not interested in the movie process or in seeing movies. He wants to play music. So on the day that they filmed the scene um, at Disney Hall, where Nathaniel and I first went there to see Beethoven's Third, um, I had told Nathaniel, and he said, OK, I'll meet you at Disney Hall, Mr. Lopez. And I said, yeah, we don't want to miss this. All of your buddies in the LA Philharmonic, they're playing themselves in the movie. Um, and since he knows all of them, I thought, OK, he'll want to be up there and see all of that. Mm -hmm. So I go, I, I go to Disney Hall, and the, when I get there, um, there may be two or 300 people inside Disney Hall. The cast and crew, um, all of the equipment, the LA Phil, and Nathaniel's out in front across the street playing the violin. And I went over and I said, Nathaniel, um, this is it. Let's go in and watch them do our scene. And he said, yeah, oh, that's, that's now, isn't it? He said, uh, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day. The weather's great. I'm really getting into this piece right here. Um, can I go in later? I said, they're making the, this is the scene. We've been talking about this. This is the day. Jamie Foxx and Robert Downey Jr. are in our seats. And we're going to go and watch them, and all your friends in the orchestra are there. And he said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, but you know, I mean, it, it's just gorgeous out here. <laughs> and I think I'm going to stay here a little bit longer. I walked across the street, and the producer, Gary Foster, was there and met me and said, what's he doing? And I looked across the street. There he was alone. And I said, Gary, we got the right title for this thing. The soloist is happy as a clam. Let's just let him be. Thank you so much. Thank all of you for coming and being a part of this last installment in our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. We look forward to having you back next year when we get started again in the fall. Have a safe trip home. <laughs>